in the mid-90s, a small relatively unknown company called RTI brought the private eye to Nintendo. Now this was their own small little wearable device that allowed a user to have their own small private screen. It was basically the precursor to like the Google Glass. And legendary game inventor Gunpei Yokoi saw this technology as something unique that Nintendo's competitors wouldn't be able to replicate. Seeing an opportunity to push Nintendo's stance as an innovator in the gaming industry, he sought out to turn it into Nintendo's latest and greatest thing. And so it was that the private eye eventually became the Virtual Boy, which well, would become Nintendo's worst-selling console. But where did the private eye come from, and why did it cause the Virtual Boy to sell so poorly? We're going to take a look at this and more, so stick around and join us for today's trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 99th episode of our Video Game Nostalgia podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. So, so close. Each week we tell you a story about one game relevant to the current week in gaming history. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the game, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. This week quite the legacy, we're looking back at the Virtual Boy, a 5th generation video game console released by Nintendo on July 21st, 1995. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who always sees the world in black and red. He's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, what's it like constantly seeing red? You know, you get used to it after a while, Dave, and eventually it just becomes a part of who you are. Just seeing red all the time, huh? I mean, yeah, as I look around my room, both the ceiling and the floor are red, so... Yeah, that they are. Hmm. Go figure. So, Dave. Yeah. What you been playing? Oh, crap. Yeah. Um, Oxygen not included. Rocket League. I don't think there's anything else, is there? Uh, I couldn't tell you, Dave. I only know that you've been playing those two. Other than that, I have no idea what you do in your free time. I don't think there's been any other games, so we're just going to go with those two. I'm boring. All right. Well, I guess there's no Honey Pop this week. No, no Honey Pop this week. <laughs> what have you been playing? Well, Dave, this week has also been Oxygen Not Included, some Rocket League, and a little bit of Escape from Tarkov. Oh, yeah, Tarkov. Yes, Tarkov. How's that been going? I don't play it nearly as much as I used to, but uh hasn't been going terribly. Just, you know, you win some, you lose some. That's the nature of the game. True statement. Very true. Well, Rob, today we're looking at the Virtual Boy, and I have you ever, ever come across a Virtual Boy? I've heard of it, but I've never actually gotten to see one or hold one or anything like that. All I've seen are pictures or videos of it. So never, never gotten to firsthand experience of it. Yeah, I mean, this came out months after you were born. That's not very surprising. And it was gone. I wouldn't say before your first birthday, but let's say gone before your second birthday. So I don't really see a reason why you may have come across it. It's 
it's an infamous video game system, that's for sure. But still, we're going to learn why. Just a side note for those of you, today we're going to talk about a lot of techno babble. Uh, we're going to talk about how the Virtual Boy works, why it is what it is. So it's very much an episode about the technology itself. You know, I know techno babble is not for everyone, so I thought I'd give you a little warning. But we're going to learn about the Virtual Boy rub. Woo! Techno babble. Techno babble. So the Virtual Boy. The story of the Virtual Boy goes all the way back to Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1985. And there in Massachusetts, an engineer named Alan Becker sat squished into a typical airline seat. When squished in this airline seat, an idea popped into his head. He thought to himself that wouldn't it be nice for himself to have a small, sharp, high-resolution display attached to a personal computer. Now, let me remind you, this is 1985. You know, I, on one hand, we can say that he was definitely ahead of his time because now we have small, sharp-displayed personal computers in the palm of our hands. But back here in 1985, laptop computers were bigger, not quite so convenient, and they most definitely did not have high-resolution displays. Even more so, you could barely see them without light because backlit screens were a thing. And motion, anytime anyone tried to do anything in motion, it was just a it was a mess. That that nothing of what he wanted was technologically, you know, available at the time. It wasn't. It, 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 you just you got to put into context because it wasn't like it is now. You see, most TVs and displays at the time use CRT. You know, the old boob tube TVs, the really large monitors. Oh, yeah. Many, many, many times moving them big old things. I definitely remember. And CRT technology was big, way too big and way too power hungry to shrink down to portable size. Now, we did that with LCD technology and... LCD technology was really just starting getting going at about the same time. To put things into context, the first LCD television was a TV wristwatch that was released by Epson Psycho in 1982. So this is about the time when LCD TVs were just starting to trickle into the market. And it was definitely more of a Japanese thing for a few years in the early to mid 80s before it found its way to... You know, before the Japanese company started to sell here in the States. So LCD, we weren't quite there yet. So Becker had an idea on how to on how to create a little personal viewing device that that he could use in situations like this. And his idea came from, in all honesty, the invention of the flatbed scanner. He had... Isn't that, that kind of flatbed scanner? What's a flatbed scanner? Yeah. A scanner that how about a copy machine is a flatbed scanner? Oh, OK. I just asked. I've never heard it referred to as that. So that was just a weird, I don't know, weird term for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a, a flatbed scanner is where you, you know, it. I don't know any it's other a flat way to surface it. that you scan stuff. Yeah. Yeah. OK. I, I don't know. It just sounds like something you'd. You know, it's used to scan the back of a truck or something. A flatbed. <laughs> oh, man. No, 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 no. So 
Becker had had the pleasure of working with uh, Ray Kurzweil, who's a really legendary inventor. And among the things that Ray had invented was optical character recognition. And optical character recognition, or OCR, as you may see it, OCR still around, is basically a computer program that can recognize text in any normal font. And other technologies had to be invented around OCR. And that was the two technologies that were invented around it were the flatbed scanner and text-to-speech synthesizers. And what Kurtzwell was working on was a reading machine for the blind. And all this stuff came together when he was working on a reading machine for the blind. And how it worked, basically, was I had these little light diodes, these little light sensors that basically would sweep across the page to capture the light. And it would basically, whatever it read, it, it the program would convert it to a digital image. So that's a really fancy way of saying he invented a, a scanner. You know, we know them as scanners and copy machines nowadays, but they didn't exist. He invented the concept of, of OCR, which led to all these things. Um, led to... I mean, scanners and copiers are the bane of our existence, but they really started here. So, And so basically these little light sensors, like I said, would sweep across the page line by line to read it and then recreate it as a digital display. And this idea is exactly what Alan Becker had in mind for his little portable display, except his idea was to do it in reverse. So his thought was that he could use not light sensors, but lights themselves that would sweep across a person's line of vision line by line to print an image right into a person's retina, which sounds really more drastic than it is because it's kind of what we do nowadays, but it's the same concept. Basically he thought he could use mirrors to, to sweep an image, not all at one time, but up and down really fast. So it was barely perceptible right into a person's eye. Interesting. I, wouldn't have thought of doing something like that. Like, well, there's people much smarter than us that did. And thank God they did. Cause they create a lot of really cool technologies. Damn straight. So because of how LEDs light up, which of course we know now because LEDs are everywhere. I mean, LEDs are the basis for light bulbs. Even nowadays, Becker thought that this was going to be an easy way to present a very bright, very sharp image in a portable package that used very little power and was very cost effective. So he began to look around for pre-existing technology that he could use to create his what he his invention, right? And wouldn't you know it, red LEDs were absolutely everywhere. Now think about all these old pieces of te- technology from the 80s. Uh, since we're a video game nostalgia podcast, think about the famous Nintendo Entertainment System. Next to the power button is what, Rob? Uh, reset button. And then next to that? A power LED. Which is what color? Red. Red. Your VCR probably had a power button that lit up on red. Hell, even my current TV has a little red light to show when it's on and off. Mine has the, yep, mine, I just turned around and checked mine. It has the red LED that says it's off. Red LEDs were the just the standard they they were the first mass produced they were the cheapest they were the easiest to create they became the de facto power led and they were everywhere 
So they're mass produced and they're cheap. And so Becker begins to look around for specifically where he can poach the idea because he needed LEDs in an array. They needed to be in a line that he could, you know, work his magic on. And he found it in a company that made large format printers. And like everyone else, they used red LEDs to do it. So Becker's display by default, because he wanted to use, because red LCDs was the established technology, would be displaying red graphics on a black background. That, that, that was how he got there. So with that in mind, he puts together a prototype of what he called the SLA, the Scan Linear Array, throws it out there, gets a round of investments, you know, his, his, his angel investors come together, and in 1986, he's able to form a company called RTI, Reflection Technology Incorporated, around this technology. And what they came up with initially was called the Private Eye. It was a one-inch display capable of simulating a 12-inch display as seen from 18 inches away, which is a whole lot of really fancy things. It, it literally was a wearable screen. It It is the grandfather. You know, it's easy to think about this today because we have eyeglasses that can display heads-up displays like the Google Glass or the HoloLens. You ever gotten to play with any of those, Rob? I have not myself, no, unfortunately. So, I mean, it's basically just glasses that do the same thing. They shoot an image right into your eye and you can see through it, but you can also see in there. Now, the private eye, you couldn't see through it, but it essentially was a eyepiece that you would just wear on your head. It would butt up to your eye and in it, you could see whatever they were displaying. And what they envisioned the private eye to be was a way for someone to see useful information while keeping both hands free for other work. So the examples that they marketed were a doctor could watch vital signs while performing surgery with both his hands, or a mechanic could view the technical manual of a car or a plane while they were cramped underneath it with the with greasy tools in their hands. Some some kind of practical ideas, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean I that would have been very useful when learning it's, how to do a lot of things and it still you know, would be very useful <laughs> YouTube videos. <laughs> hey YouTube, Chris fix it here. Yeah, it's still very useful. I mean it, it's a neat concept and one in all honesty that you know here we are in 2022 and it really hasn't come to complete fruition yet. So we're close. We're closer than we've ever been. It's possible in a lot of ways, but we're just not quite there. So in fall of 1988, they showcased the Private Eye at a trade show in Las Vegas, and there it received a lot of press attention. It was given articles in Popular Science and Popular Mechanics, which I miss those magazines. I really should, should resubscribe to them. And this brought into the company tons of potential sales leads. So as a result, they sell about 75 development kits uh, at $5,000 a pop, uh, which is a kind of a lot of money for this little company to bring in. And so the private eye gets out there to all these places, but no one really could figure out what to do with the product. Nothing, you know, all these firms bought the development kit and played around with it, 
but no one really could figure out an actual use for it. Now, this is the late 80s into the early 90s now, and this was about the time that virtual reality be- became a thing. It was the buzz. It was the buzz at the time. Now, if you want to learn some cool things about the history of virtual reality, we talked about it in depth way back in episode 29, and you can find old episodes of our podcast on our website at memorycardlane.com. In episode 29, we talk about all the early VR goggles that this would compete against, like the Cybermax and the Sega VR. Yes, there was a Sega VR. Go learn about it. Yeah, do the thing. Yeah, do the thing. Go to our website. Learn about VR. So looking to jump on this VR bandwagon, engineers at RTI here, they mounted two private eye units to a welder's mask. They attached some really primitive head head tracking apparatus to it, and they attached it all to an IBM computer that ran a tank simulation game. So you put on this weird looking welder's mask and you were looking out of the tank into a desert in front of you. It was cool. One engineer who was not a video gamer recalled, he said it was incredible. He stated that it was very psychologically powerful to put it on. Now, I think that that's a fair statement for VR. I know that's how I feel about VR. Can you relate to that, Rob? I would. Yeah, I would agree. That's pretty, pretty accurate. I mean, that's the coolest thing about VR. Like you're there. I mean, that's it. You, You put the headset on. I mean, it's hard to relay it in any other way we've never put it on but that's the coolest part like you put the headset on and you're there plain and simple yeah it's it's surreal for those who haven't tried it it's uh it's if you ever get the chance awesome. i would highly recommend it i understand you might get motion sickness and that's unfortunate if you do but for those that wouldn't <laughs> yeah it's pretty awesome funny thing about that uh well we'll get to that one in a second but okay essentially what rti had created was a very inexpensive virtual reality headset, which they then tried to market it to toy and video game companies. But everyone passed. One of the biggest hurdles was the head tracking and motion sickness. Motion sickness? Yes, motion sickness. Hmm. Because if there's any delay between your head moving and the view on the screen, it it's the direct cause for most motion sickness in VR. And at the time the technology was, um, I recall, I read an interview with one of the engineers who said we were definitely on the slow side of the vomit issue were his exact words. (laughs) Cause you could either be too slow to be behind the movement or too fast to be ahead of the movement. Getting it just right is something that modern technology has kind of gotten us way closer to and allowed for VR to be a thing now. But back then it was, it wasn't quite the case. So they were on the slow side. Apparently I just like that phrase. We were, if I recall, he put, he said, if I recall correctly, we were definitely on the slow side of the vomit thing. <laughs> That's awesome. Great <laughs> quote to have. <laughs> and they even showed their, their little VR headset, the Sega, you know, in our old episode, we talked about the Sega VR and Sega passed up on the technology because this was the private eye, which of course was only displayed in black and red. So they showed it to Sega. Sega passes on it because it's only one color. They're coming off of the Game Gear. They're pushing the Game Gear against the Game Boy, the Game Gear being in all these colors. So Sega's whole marketing at the time was, hey, we're doing everything in colors while our competitors aren't. And 
RTI comes to Sega with a one colored display and they're like, yeah, this doesn't align with what we're doing nowadays. So Sega passes on it too. And so it came to be in 1991 that the technology was brought to Japan, came to Nintendo's offices, and it fell upon the desk of Gunpei Yokoi. Now, we've talked about Yokoi before in multiple episodes. If you'll recall, he was in charge of Nintendo's uh, research and development one department, and he oversaw many successes for Nintendo. These included Donkey Kong, Metroid, the Game & Watch, and perhaps the most important part of his legacy was the invention of the Nintendo Game Boy. Yokoi was infatuated with new technology. He, in particular, he loved this technology. And where everyone else saw an issue with the red on black display, Yokoi saw strength in it. Because of the way the private eye was designed, he liked the reason that you could immerse a player in perfect, complete darkness. He saw this as a way of projecting infinite depth, of creating video games that weren't confined to the borders of a television set. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I agree. And in his mind, once there were no borders, then he would also attract new people to video games it would it would bring people in who just weren't video gamers so in his mind transcending the tv screen transcended the definition of what it meant to be a gamer and through innovation nintendo was going to bring this whole new introduce all these new gamers to the fold to him this was the next great thing to catch people's attention to catch that fever that they caught when they first saw the Nintendo Entertainment System or the Super Nintendo Entertainment System or the Game Boy. These were all big successes for Nintendo, and they're always, always looking for the next greatest and latest thing, you know? Absolutely. So Yokoi's on board. He loves it. He says, I want to do something with this. So he brings the technology in front of the Nintendo board, and they were given to go ahead to create a product funny little anecdote from the board meeting you know so yokoi gets in there with a bunch of board members and then yamauchi the president at the time is uh you know is there and there's a there's a story in which yamauchi falls asleep during the meeting and in western to us in the western side that's a that's offensive we'd be like okay you're never going to get this made because the boss is sleeping but over there in that culture I guess that it was seen as a good thing because it meant that he trusted the people around him to make the decision and was all on board for it. And so that was seen as a positive in this meeting, but apparently he fell asleep during the the meeting and it was, it's a positive thing. Go figure. Man, I wish it was more of a positive thing when I fell asleep (laughs) asleep during meetings because boy, do I tell you, does that happen quite a bit? Woo. It's I mean, all because I trust everything. It's that's, not because I'm sleepy or anything. Right. Just it's all it's all good, man. Just that's keep right. doing what you're doing. I mean, let's be honest. It was Gunpei Yokoi. He was legend. He is a legend. Was well, was a legend. And at this time, he definitely you know had hit after hit after hit. So Nintendo signs a deal with Reflective Technologies with RTI for exclusive use of the technology in video games worldwide, and RTI is granted a granted ten million dollars in advanced royalties. Not bad for a company that a couple years earlier was selling 
75 of these things at $5,000 a pop, you know? True. So then comes down to what are we going to do with it, right? Initially, Yokoi had intended to create a video game console that looked like a pair of goggles. You know, like what we know as VR goggles today. He wanted to create something that gamers could put on and walk around with. So they went, they picked out the pieces for it. They found their processor. They found their head tracking. They found this and that. And they started to put it together. And then all the roadblocks started. So first of all, Nintendo's engineers were concerned about placing a chip with high radio emissions near users' heads. This was before we knew anything about how EMF radiation affects the brain. Of course, we know now it doesn't. Also, because the computer chips were close to the display processor in these goggles, they produced visual noise, meaning they made the display look fuzzy. And that meant that the computer itself had to actually be covered by a metal plate to to prevent that from happening. So these two things basically made goggles a non-deal because everything at that point was just way too heavy. The VR32, which is what it was named at this point, became a device that one could prop onto their face using a clumsy shoulder stand. That's where we were at that point. And then comes another roadblock, Nintendo's legal department. They were worried that children might fall down stairwells while playing. One engineer recalled a meeting in which they all discussed a nightmare scenario in which there's a kid sitting in the back of an automobile when the automobile gets into an accident and the kid is all messed up by the glass and the plastic of the VR goggles being shoved into their face. Wow, that's graphic. Yeah. And so all these liability concerns turn the virtual boy into a shoulder-mounted clumsy shoulder, shoulder display to the stationary, bulky bipod device that we know and love today. So the engineers are working on the product, and then the marketing team gets it, of course. The VR32 becomes the Virtual Boy. It's virtual reality, and the boy is a throwback to the Game Boy. They wanted to capitalize on the popularity of, of the boy name, so we get the Virtual Boy. But Nintendo is continuously worried about liability, uh, you know, for other reasons that we'll talk about in a moment. But as part of these continued discussions, they hire an eye expert in Boston to study the potential effects of the Virtual Boy's display on human vision. And to be honest, the, the, the eye expert found the technology mostly harmless, with one exception, Rob. What's that one exception, Dave? They found that in children whose optic systems weren't yet fully developed, which is children typically from five to seven years of age, lazy eyes could develop in the screens if if the screens weren't aligned correctly. So the design of the Virtual Boy was changed again, and the display was put in a steel frame and a rigid plastic case to make sure that once they were in place, they couldn't move and cause children to have lazy eyes. Well, that, yeah, no, that must have been what happened to me because, uh, you know, I must have played a lazy or a oh, yeah. boy as a young kid. That's, I don't remember. That, there you go. It's blocked it out. So now we're into 1995. They've got 
the virtual boy working with R&D one and the other, you know, a lot of resources at Nintendo are working on what's known as the ultra 64, which would become the Nintendo 64, which in case you don't know, came out in 96. So they got all these projects going on at one time, but the feelings of the virtual boy, they weren't, they weren't good. People weren't loving on it as all these changes happened. People were starting to have really bad feelings about, what the virtual boy was you know it was originally going to bridge the gap between the snes and the ultra 64 was going to be it was going to be a little in between but as time passed and all these things came and the changes and the feelings developed it was really starting to be seen as this little niche 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 system that was just not going to be enjoyed by the masses. Basically, at, as that started to happen, Yokoi was asked to de-emphasize Mario on the systems. So Nintendo started to put their money and their focus on the Nintendo 64, and they really wanted to wow audiences, which they did. Let's be honest, they did. They wanted to wow audiences with the presenting Mario in full-color 3D on a 64-bit system. And they didn't want the Virtual Boy to take away from that. Basically, Yokoi was then asked, like, hey, if you've got Mario titles, like, uh-uh, pull that back. We we don't want a Mario title to be the, the linchpin, the showcase of the system, right? Right. So instead of a Mario title showcasing the system, the developers at uh, in the R&D1 division came up with space pinball and ended up being called galactic pinball but it was space pinball at first admittedly space pinball was cool but the general consensus is it wasn't cool the same way the tank simulator that had brought them to this point was cool you know the engineers just weren't in love with the stationary machine that displays in 3d as opposed to the the 3d head tracking set that they started out this with so the virtual boy at this point gets started, starts leaking out to the press. And like I, we had alluded to, you know, this is VR headset frenzy time when the technology is starting to take off. So it's thrown into the mix with all the other VR headsets and VR is looked at as a gimmick. And then even worse in July of 1995 in Japan, a new law came into effect and this was called the product liability act. And essentially what this law was is it made companies responsible for any accidents caused by the use of their products. And if an act wasn't specifically mentioned in the manual, the company would be responsible for damage. Now, it's really funny when they talk about this. If you look it up, like literally it led to companies listing a whole bunch of things that users shouldn't do with them, even if it didn't relate to their product, like don't play this with a wet cat in your hand type crap, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so with that in mind, the manual of the virtual boy was full of all these warnings about how it could damage your eyesight and how you need to be careful with it. Because even though it wasn't a thing, it was a thing. And this product liability act led Nintendo to probably be a little overzealous with the need to protect their behind, you know? Right. I mean, if they had to tell you to freaking not hold a wet cat while playing, I mean, come on. <laughs> so the Japanese media grabs a hold of this, and over in Japan, the Virtual Boy stories, it's bad for your eyes. It gets all this negative media about how it can 
ruin your eyesight and cause you to have a lazy eye. You need to be careful with it. And so that's what people associated with it. So it, it's not really a surprise that when the Virtual Boy was released in Japan on July 21st of 95, people just didn't want it. <laughs> I mean, all they knew about it, thanks to the media, was that it could damage your eyesight, which wasn't the case, but also maybe is. I don't know. Luckily, the U.S. media didn't for once that, you know, un- unbelievably, they didn't sen- sensationalize it. So they didn't grab onto this concept when it was released here in the United States in August of 1995. It fared much better, to be honest with you, much, much better. Um, it came out in August uh, at about one hundred and seventy nine ninety five was its retail. In fact, during its launch window, it beat, beat out the Sega Saturn, which was its other major competitor. Uh, here in the United States, that was a win. Uh, it was helped significantly by the fact that Nintendo had a really, in my opinion, what's a brilliant marketing tactic here in the United States. They actually partnered with Blockbuster to rent out virtual boys out of Blockbuster stores throughout the United States. Oh, damn, that's pretty cool. I didn't know about that. And this helped get the virtual boy in front of way more people than probably would have had it otherwise. And then that helps sales, you know? Oh, undeniably. I, I think, I mean, that's kind of the gimmick with being able to rent all of those other consoles from family video to see, Hey, do we, mm-hmm. is this something I'm really interested in? Or is it just, uh, just, just another fad. I know I used to look forward to renting systems so much. I know, especially like, the N64 was my favorite oh, one my to God. get all the I, time. I know. I know. So, System didn't last for very long. It comes out in July in Japan. And Nintendo decides to pull the plug on the Virtual Boy in December for Japan itself. So, it only lasted six months in Japan. Demand was better in the United States, but it still wasn't great. Almost a year later, in May of 96, they dropped the price of the Virtual Boy to $99. By this time, Blockbuster was selling their rental units for $50. Uh, it, it wasn't very pretty. Uh, it was kind of the herald of things to come because Nintendo decided to pull the plug completely stateside shortly thereafter in August. Uh, Let's be honest, the November of 96 is when the Nintendo 64 came out. They were at that point just deciding to put all of their resources towards the Nintendo 64. Probably for good reason. Let's be honest. Yeah, probably for good reason. Probably for good reason. So yeah, so the Virtual Boy. Let's talk about what the Virtual Boy is. That's how we got it. That's what it did. Let's talk about what it is. Because not a lot of people probably know. It was a tabletop video game console that was released in 95, as we said. It was marketed as the first console capable of displaying stereoscopic 3D graphics. So looking at 3D through both eyes. And basically, the best way to describe it was a giant set of red 3D goggles mounted on a on like a bipod mounted on a stand and that's and it had a controller that was attached to it so you'd put this stand on like a tabletop and slam your head into the eyepiece put the controller in your hand and you were blessed with a 3d display 
that was only in red and black. So this was 95. This would have been, what, 9, 10-year-old me, right? 11-year-old me. And I remember 11-year-old me thought it was super cool. Uh, it was 3D. You know, you got to put this in the context. I know that was a downside for a lot of people, but we had the Game Boy, which had no color, and that was super awesome. You know, we came from an era that didn't have super fancy graphics, so the fact that it was red and black was not um, was not really a downside, and this thing was freaking 3D, like for real 3D. Well, not 3D goggles in the set. It was more like watching a 3D movie or a 3D TV, but it was... I think for a lot of us, it was, you know, we either had the red and blue 3D got 3D glasses. You ever mess with those, Rob? Do they still have those these days? Yeah, I know about the red and blues. So that was the only other real way we had 3D. Like we either had the red and blue glasses, you know, and then we go to this for a lot of us that were in that sweet spot of born in the mid late 80s. This was our first real like introduction to stereoscopic 3d which this was i mean the graphics on this thing were very they were basic they were real basic but it was it was neat because we were playing in 3d that's i guess that's the only way to put it i mean in hindsight it was a piece of crap we all know that now one of the biggest flaws that nintendo made was originally they bought a processor and a visual display and everything they built it around a set of the concept of having a portable headset you know what i mean and they had a real opportunity when they made this thing stationary to beef it up because then you don't need to worry about power or weight or anything when it's going to become stationary so in hindsight you know pretty much what scholars say is one of the flaws of this system is that Nintendo didn't take an opportunity there to actually like invest in 3d because when it became stationary, you could have put a powerful processor in it and stuff and really jumped ahead of everyone with 3d graphics. But you know, that's not really Nintendo's thing. They're not, they're not usually the guys that jump ahead with technology. Well, that's no, they're not. We'll talk about that shortly. So that's that's it. it i posted on our website at www.memorycardlane.com uh there's a video i post on there off youtube that has like an a to z of the whole virtual boy library if you're kind of curious what it looks like and what we're talking about and so rob let's talk about the games for the virtual boy okay dave let's talk about those games <laughs> it only had 22 games only 22 games. Only 22 games between what? Japan and the United States. And let me guess, we didn't get all 22. No, we did not. We got Somewhere like, s- what, 15? Uh, mm. Maybe. I think three were exclusive to us and four or five were exclusive to Japan. There, you know, there were just 22 games made all together for the system. Some of the highlights, there were there were actually a few Mario games that were made despite nintendo's insistence to pull away from nintendo or mario they just weren't anything out of you know special like like mario 64 ended up being we had mario's tennis which is really just a basic tennis game with mario characters we had mario clash which was a 3d 
reimagining of the original Mario Brothers game. Now, not Super Mario Brothers, not NES Mario. I'm talking arcade Mario. Do you, do you remember? Have you ever played the very first Mario Brothers game before the platforming one? Uh, you, the, the, you're not talking like the original Nintendo game, nor Donkey Kong. No, I'm talking about the one they made before that of the Mario Brothers. Like it's a single screen and there's turtles that come out of pipes and you got to like jump on the turtles and the pipe goes from one screen to the other. It's like a single screen. It's literally just called Mario Brothers. I I think I've played like remastered versions of that in other Mario games because it sounds familiar. But yeah, I don't I never have known that there was just a standalone arcade game that wasn't a platformer. Yeah, there was before Super Mario Brothers. There was just Mario Brothers and yeah, that's fascinating. We should probably well, we've never actually covered Super Mario Brothers. One day we'll have to do that. We've never we've never done that before. Hundred episodes. We've never actually done um like Mario like the original. Well, we've done weird Mario stuff. I guess that counts. So, so yeah, you know Mario RPG and yep, you know some other ones. Hotel Mario. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> you can find more at our website. Yeah. So that they reimagined the original Mario Brothers in Mario Clash. There was a Virtual Boy Wario Land, which was a platform game in which Wario has to go on a quest to find treasure in the Amazon. Of course, we talked about Space Pinball. It became Galactic Pinball. Uh, There was also a bunch of sport titles. We had golf, virtual bowling, virtual fishing, virtual league baseball. There's also a pretty unknown spinoff of the Megami Tensai series on the Virtual Boy that's called Jack Brothers. If you don't know what Megami Tensai is, it's perhaps best known nowadays as being the Persona video game series. Persona is based on that that universe. Okay, okay. Uh, But before Persona, there was a whole series of of Megami Tensai games. And uh, Jack Brothers, in Jack Brothers, you can take control of either Jack Frost, Jack Lantern, or Jack Skeleton, who have all visited the human world for Halloween and they have to find their way back to the fairy world via a portal, and all these obstacles are in their way. Gnarly. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Actually, I think Jack Brothers is probably the coolest game that they they made for the virtual I know, boy. That seriously sounds like a pretty dope idea. I mean, come on, Jack Skellington. That's all you need to say. I know, I know. They made one game based on the Gundam series called SD Gundam Dimension War. That, you know... Gundams are big virtual mech robots. Oh, it's yeah. a fighting I, game. I used to love Gundam. Yeah. Which this is like the before the Gundam that I knew, but Gundam's Yeah, this is S- this is SD Gundam specifically. Space Invaders had a virtual collection. There was a few oddities. Uh the last game that they ever made for the system, which is should come as no surprise, was 3D Tetris. Literally it's called 3D uh, Tetris course it was i know we did a tetris episode recently and we talked about specifically how it's been ported to every single system so yes it's also on the virtual boy <laughs> i i should not be as surprised as i am. i mean i'm not that surprised but i am still kind of surprised um but yeah that's i yeah damn you tetris damn you tetris but yeah i mean they had 22 games and young me thought this was super cool but old me recognizes that it was i mean i it was okay i know i know why it failed in hindsight but i also recall it being legitimately the first 
like 3D 3D thing I can ever remember playing. And I, I there's probably a whole slew of gamers like me that can say the same thing. But with that being said, I guess that's a good question for you, Rob, as as our as our resident person who finds out what other people than me think. Are there other people who can say that? <laughs> well, Dave, as is par for the course for these older systems, especially the ones that were a little less popular, it's kind of difficult to find these reviews. Uh, but I was able to find a couple of different people who talked about it. And while granted, these weren't necessarily at the time and they're looking at it from a later time in uh in you know more recent times where there's a lot more to compare it against uh i still think that they had some uh, pretty pretty good points to make about the virtual boy that would still even apply to back in the day of its release so with that let's go ahead and start off with our critic review from the video game critic so this critic says that this bizarre portable quote system proved to be a dismal failure for nintendo Developed at a time when virtual reality was considered the next logical step in video game evolution, the Virtual Boy conveyed a true three-dimensional world and surround sound in a small, self-contained unit. Resembling a set of red goggles on a metal stand with a wired controller, the Virtual Boy was just too weird for its own good. Its graphics were high-resolution and sharp, but rendered in monochromatic red on black. The system was actually capable of some extraordinary gameplay but that was largely overshadowed by its controversial LED technology. Not intended for use by children under the age of seven. Warnings on the box and in the manual cautioned about the possibility of permanent vision damage. Frequent breaks were advised to avoid eye strain and other health issues. The system manual was a veritable minefield of warnings, containing no less than 19 big red boxes. Understandably, this freaked out the parents of Nintendo's youngest fans. But he continues saying that anyone who's actually played the system can vouch for the surprisingly immersive experience it produces. Although the system's library of games is tiny, most took full advantage of the system's unique capabilities, conveying an amazing sense of depth. He talks about the controller and notes how it's remarkably well-designed, with a symmetrical button configuration dual control pads, and comfortable handles. The unit also generates impressive surround sound audio without the need for earphones. Unfortunately, it's a system that needs to be experienced firsthand to be truly appreciated. Unable to be properly marketed on TV or in print, most people didn't know what they were missing. Video Game Critic finishes by saying that this is an ideal system for collectors, offering a unique game experience unlike anything you've played before that's a fascinating take on the controller it it's it is this weird mix between what the nintendo 64 was like going to have and what the what we came from because it's a bigger controller like the n64 with big handles but directional pads on each side that are similar to what the NES controller had. So it's this weird in between for the two. And since controllers definitely went that route of like the double, like double handles nowadays that we grab this, you get what I'm trying to say. 
the way it's shaped, we now have two handles that we grab on controllers, whereas the NES controller was just a square thingamabob. You know what I mean? And the N64 was a, an awkward squid hand, yes. Yeah, the Virtual Boy controller is probably... Clo- it's this cool evolution that's closer to what we use now than what we had before. It's it's legit and in between the two, and I, I've i never looked take that stance before. I think that's kind of cool perspective, so... Well, Dave, they actually end up not being the only person to talk about the controller. Mm-hmm. But before I get to that, we're going to I tried finding some user reviews and it's not easy. No. Uh, a lot of what I found was just people who are reviewing purchases on eBay, uh, things like that or Amazon. And with that, I mean, That's you know, we cool, looked at though. That's pretty cool. Absolutely. I mean, you can find these. They're they're not very cheap. But um, one example of that is Natho580, who reviewed the virtual boy on ebay who mentioned that playing it's like stepping back in a time machine a unique offering that at the same time feels like familiar mid-90s nintendo he notes that the red and black graphics are sharp and the controller is very comfortable to hold once you get your setup right you can minimize strain on the neck and eyes he does mention that there's a wide variety of game offerings and that they're worth tracking down but uh, i mean with 22 that you mentioned i don't know if that's necessarily wide but he does say that it's the machine. The sound from the machine sounds as good as it must have 26 years ago. So definitely a feeling of nostalgia and that nostalgia, obviously as a kid, you think that 22 is a huge number and you know, maybe that's how he's thinking. Maybe. Hey, so you, you pulled these, you pulled all these reviews from eBay, right? Just the one. Yes. So what does this go for at eBay nowadays? Well, it really depends on the condition and, you know, just, just, Sometimes also people's kind of insanity. Um, I was seeing prices anywhere from about three to nine hundred on average. Nice. I mean, for ones that were selling for not fifty to ninety nine dollars at the end, that's that's a that's pretty decent there. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I guess on the low end, you can find some that are two fifty, but that's with no cords. Uh, it's missing stuff but to get like complete tested with some game i mean you look at 500 700 um i mean it it's it's you definitely can find some cheap ones but if you're looking for that real nice collector's piece you're gonna be spending a pretty penny true enough and with that dave i'm gonna get to our last review uh this is from nerd bacon and I'm not sure if that's they're a critic, just a general person who likes talking about games. But uh, I definitely resonate with this review very well because they started off with giving the Virtual Boy a nerd rating of Gary Busey out of 10. And if that's not great, I don't know what is. Okay, what does a Gary Busey out of 10 give us? Well, Nerd Bacon talks how the Virtual Boy was a hybrid catastrophe of bad marketing, technological limitations, unchecked ambition and business bureaucracy. Nobody wanted it, not the casual public who were wary of its $180 price point and the melange of warnings and disclaimers found on the box and in the manual. Not the hardcore crowd who were let down by the monochrome display and the undelivered promise of virtual reality gaming. Not the company who funded its creation, who rushed it out to retail so they could focus all their efforts on the Nintendo 64. Not even its creator who regarded the final product as a prototype that shouldn't have seen the light of day. The bad press, the high price, the lack of support, 
the awkward design and the rise of the first generation of 3D consoles were all thorns in the system's side. And so, less than a year after its release, the Virtual Boy died a quiet and anemic death. But he does say how he, if the Virtual Boy had been a success, we may have eventually seen an updated model with full color and expanded graphical hel- capabilities. He even claims that maybe there's a full color prototype somewhere deep in the vaults of Nintendo's headquarters. But he mentions that at the same time, the red and black display is part of the system's charm. Unfortunately, red is a stimulating, violent, almost anxiety-inducing color, which leads them to their biggest problem with the Virtual Boy's display. It absolutely makes you feel odd. (laughs) Surprise, (laughs) surprise, right? It's the big joke of the Virtual Boy. Most people just assume it's the 3D that screws with your eyes, though. And... Nerd Bacon continues talking about the controller, who says that depending on who you ask, it either looks like a slender, elongated DualShock, a funky M, or the head of a giant ant. But they personally think it looks more like a kitten eating a bowl of hummus. Then again, <laughs> what? they've spent enough time in the psych ward to know it's best to second guess their perceptions. But ultimately what they want to say is that they love the Virtual Boy controller. So... A lot of people seem to really enjoy the controller, Dave. So if there's anything, it gave way to great controllers. And as with our other critic review, they say how it has a simple serial setup that does a great job providing players a three-dimensional oral experience. Everything about the audio itself sounds murky and dirty, but not in a bad way. On the contrary, the distinct audio only enhances the illusion that you're peeking into a world far removed from our own, which is exactly what the creators were going for. Needless to say, the Virtual Boy gets a bad rep. And on some fronts, it deserves it. But they say that doesn't make it a bad system. For starters, it's probably the most unique console ever made, both in premise and design. In some ways, it's gotten better with age. There's a history and novelty to it that make it an interesting part of your collection. So they talk about how recently they've seen more and more people coming around to the Virtual Boy, and while they understand why the system failed, they still recognize it as the quintessential Nintendo console. Fun, engaging, innovative, and distinct. Like any Nintendo console post-SNES, people had their complaints about it, but no one can deny that it's a unique part of gaming history, one that can't be emulated without an exact recreation of the hardware. Maybe that's one reason why prices for it have been going up in recent years. They finish off by saying that they think the appeal of the Virtual Boy speaks for itself. Because, let's be honest, people are either into retro gaming, or they aren't. And with the Virtual Boy, people love it because there's nothing else like it. It would be a stretch to say it failed because it was ahead of its time, but the relative success of products like the Oculus Rift really make you wonder... What could have happened had the Virtual Boy been given a bit more love and some support at the time of its release? Yeah, maybe. It didn't really stand a chance. I mean, it's just it's crazy to think that they were so far ahead at the time. Had this gotten some more popularity and they invested more research, who knows where we could be with virtual reality today, you know? Well, it's really funny that you say that because... At one point, Yokoi basically he there's a he has a uh, biography that's really fascinating, 
And at one point, he basically told Nintendo, like, give me money and I will send the uh, I will market this properly and I will send the Virtual Boy into the stratosphere. I mean, even even as it was flopping, he knew he knew and he was willing to work at it. But by that point, you know, the N64 and, you know, N64 was Miyamoto. So they were, you know, move all, all the all of their focus and money and everything went into that. Um, and but, I mean, I, I get it, but it's just, it's just you want to think about it. Just think how far Nintendo granted Nintendo's still a huge company. But when we really talk about modern consoles, do they really stack up against the sales of the Xbox and the PlayStation? You know, well, all right, that, hold hold that thought. I, I want to get to that, but I want to talk about I want I want to I want to talk about that, but I want to talk about the virtual finish up about the virtual boy real quick first. You'll, you'll see how it goes together. OK, well, hit me with it, Dave. Go ahead and tell us about the legacy. So we know the virtual boy was a flop. I mean, we've already established that, right? Was it? I mean, come on. Everyone has one, Dave. It's a household item. I mean, in June of 96, which is about when it started to go belly up, Nintendo reported only having sold about 770,000 consoles. Uh, that's less than a million. It's Nintendo's worst selling console by a long shot. You want to know something else that's really bad? Nintendo built a whole, they built a factory over there specifically to manufacture this console literally oh. invested a whole factory into it yeah uh, it's That's... funny when we talked about yokoi the last time we talked about him in the context of oh i can't remember but to but to make a long story short remember back then the story was it's is after the americans left japan after world war ii they vacated all these bowling alleys and Nintendo uh, bought all these bowling alleys and put one of their like mechanical shooting ranges in thinking that was going to become the next big thing. Do you remember that story? Yeah, I do remember that. And then that turned into, I think duck, what duck hunt became. And you know, that was, you know, that's how we got to that. Um, that's how we got there. This was another example of that where Nintendo put all this money. We built, we literally built a manufacturing facility around a console and then it, it flopped. I mean, it just failed. So now if you want to put this in a perspective in the modern age, we call the Wii U their last failed console. It's really considered not a commercial success by modern standards and it sold 13.5 million units. So, I mean, the standards have definitely changed. Gaming is a huge industry more, more so now than before. But I mean, less than a million, 13.5. The only thing I even found that was close to this was the Game Boy Micro, where they sold, I think, a couple million units. But everything else is hundreds of millions of, you know, which McCall it's not quite 50, 60 plus, but you, you get what I'm saying. Yep. Absolutely. You know, the N64, as we've been talking about, came out in November, and then the Virtual Boy, I mean, it, it was gone. As quickly as it was there, it was gone. You know, I it was really funny, Rob, because you and your friends are all mid-90s babies right when this came out, and everyone kept asking me, what episode, what are you guys doing it on? And more than one of them, when I said the Virtual Boy, had to look up what the Virtual Boy was. <laughs> That's you know it's it's weird to me that I just I don't know why it's such a, a normal thought for me like I don't know if something in the media growing up showed me about it but 
I just I felt like it just seems weird to me that having grown up during that time, that even though it was not a success, that it's not just widely known about. I mean, it's like E.T. the game. It sucked, but it's so well known because of that. Yeah. Maybe I just yeah. like learning about really crappy things. Maybe. But that was that was awesome to me because well i mean that's a hey that's the point of this podcast right to get to teach people new things and here they're all like what's the virtual boy and i'm like well let me show you you know <laughs> uh i mean so right there that's the point and the reason why i do this week in and week out but it just cracked me up like what's the virtual boy well let me show you something you know so oh, yeah that is pretty good so i mean let's be honest Let's recommend this episode to them. They may learn a thing or two. Not they might. They might. Unfortunately, the legacy of Yokoi is really tied up with the Virtual Boy. It's commonly thought that he was forced out of Nintendo because of the Virtual Boy's failure. He ended up leaving the following year. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, is that he had planned on retiring at the age of 50 the Virtual Boy fell on his desk when he was 49, and when he became infatuated with the technology, he just decided to postpone his retirement, and then after this all happened, it, it was time. Like, hey, I was planning on doing this anyways. Here we go, you know? Um, now, the philosophy, the culture over there in Nintendo was that you have to own up to your mistakes and, and do something about it, and he did. He made up for the Virtual Boy shortcomings by helping design the Game Boy Pocket, which was considerably more successful than the Virtual Boy. And then in August of 1996, after 31 years with Nintendo, he left Nintendo and formed his own company, Kodo. Uh, Kodo helped create the Tamagotchi. Do you remember Tamagotchis, Rob? Uh, yeah, I actually know someone yeah. still to this day who uses them. <laughs> so Kodo helped re create the Tamagotchi and the one of the last things that he did was he led development of a handheld gaming console uh relatively unknown called the Bandai Wonder Swan. We'll have to look at it someday. I think we have looked at it in the past to be honest, a little br very briefly. So he was kind of enjoying a second wind, you know, after forming his own company when as we've talked about before, unfortunately his life was cut short in 97. Just to kind of give you a quick primer, if you don't want to go back to the old episode, what happened was just an unfortunate accident. He was a passenger in a car, and that car rear-ended another car, and when they got out to examine the damage from the accident, another car uh, hit Yokoi, and he unfortunately passed away from his injuries. He let's be honest. He was a visionary. That's his legacy. Tarnished by the Virtual Boy or not, we have so much to thank him for. You know, he invented the the cross the cross shaped control pad. Literally, like that's the every controller on the face of the earth has a cross shaped control pad for the most part, and he gave that to us. You know. Oh, absolutely. And we've talked about the games he wor he's worked on. That's where we came across him before. Donkey Kong was an R&D one uh, process. Metroid was an R&D one. Game & Watch. He gave us the Game & Watch platform. He gave us the Game Boy. The Game Boy is the, you know, the Game Boy is one of the most important things that he ever did. He He's a, he's a very important figure to Nintendo history. 
I don't think the Virtual Boy has really done much to the industry. It's a case in what not to do, I guess. But I think that why I wanted to come back to it, Rob, and with what you were talking about, is that I think when we look at Yokoi's legacy, we need to talk about his design philosophy, which is very part, very much part of the, the culture at Nintendo, I think even to this day, and very relevant to the conversation and where you were going with that. So... His design philosophy is roughly translated and distilled into a concept called lateral thinking of withered technology, which is kind of funny. Uh, come again? Yes. So the basis of it is instead of looking at the latest and greatest, because you were talking about how Nintendo can't keep up with the Xboxes and the PlayStation, which want to be like cutting edge graphic and you know platforms and stuff like that right that's where we were going with that uh i was just saying more on the the thought of sales i mean if they've been the forefront of 3d technology just think of the oculus now nintendo is generally pretty good about making things affordable and pretty damn good uh if they had managed to get that technology started at a, a sooner time who knows where we could be today you know i mean shit very true but Nintendo, but Yokoi's design philosophy was that he didn't want to create the latest and greatest. Well, his de- design philosophy was what lateral thinking of whether technology is, is it's the concept of using mature technology that can be mass produced. So we see this philosophy here in the Virtual Boy and its use of red LEDs because red, LED, red LEDs were everywhere and they could be mass produced. If we go back to the Game Boy, which we've talked about, you know, Yokoi refused to adopt a color display for the Game Boy, citing the established technology of the monochrome screens and the long battery life it provided. Now, this long battery life is often seen as the reason why the Game Boy prevailed against all of the competing handhelds. The Wii is another example. It didn't join the Xbox 360 and the PlayStation 3 with the cutting-edge graphics. Instead, it almost reused the computing power of the GameCube, but it integrated really well-established and basic motion controls into a system to do something completely different. And the Wii, let's be honest, the Wii didn't backfire on Nintendo. No, it definitely didn't. So this, this is, this is, I think, I guess my argument is, is I think that Yokoi's design philosophy is kind of the Nintendo way of doing things this day. And that's probably the legacy that he's left behind specifically uh, with her technology, lateral thinking. I mean, it, it, I guess when you put it that way, it is a great way of thinking. I just, you know, it just, it just makes you wonder where could we be today? Had this technology been invested in at such an early time and not, when it was i mean granted there were obviously people who were working on it during the whole time but had nintendo's funds been pushing it forward just you know it just really leads you to wonder maybe we could be mario already just walk around as mario just yeah and all over the place yeah that swinging would... bells no! i would have i mean come on think of how much fun you had with like mario ddr just getting up and dancing and jumping with mario and luigi i agree i do i think i think that'd be great i think I don't know when and if we'll see Mario in VR. I I do agree with your I do agree with your stance that maybe if they had done differently we may have gotten to where we are with VR quicker. 
you know, in our episode on VR, we kind of talked about how we had that resurgence in the early 90s. It, I mean, we lost them about 93, 94, and then the mid 90s, probably with the virtual boy, to be honest with you, VR fell out of favor and we didn't see it. It was really just a, a, a niche product until the Oculus came around in like 2012, was it? 2016? Uh-huh. I don't remember. I don't remember at all. <laughs> yeah, we, we lost VR headsets for like 20 years after the in the mid 90s. And they didn't, it, it was literally the, the Oculus that came, that brought it back, that did something with it. And this is, I mean, you can almost count on that as a legacy because the mid 90s are, are kind of when they fell out and this was kind of the swan song. So yeah, I, I guess that's one way to look at it. But virtual boy was like I said, it was cool to, it was cool to 10 year old me. That was for sure. But it was gone as quickly as it was there and we never had one. So I, I don't think I ever got to play it outside of the displays at like the Kmart, for instance, while that's I mean- dating me. <laughs> Oh, yeah, on both fronts, actually. Uh-huh. Jeez. Whew, man. Uh, yeah, I, I still think it would. I would love to have had an opportunity to because I just think they're really screwed with the cost of them unless I really uh, get lucky sometime or have a friend who's really into collecting odd retro games. Uh, I'll never get the chance. Not unless they do a good recreation. But like uh, Nerd Bacon said, without the proper uh, technology, who knows? Who knows? But that's the Virtual Boy. Nintendo's biggest miss honestly that's the best way to put it it's nintendo's biggest miss undeniably dave undeniably all right well that'll sum it up for the virtual boy if you'd like to learn more about vr like we talked about you can go back all the way to episode 29 you can go back to our donkey kong episode to learn about yokoi you can go to I don't know. We talked about Metroid. We have a Metroid episode. All these old episodes can be found on our website at www.memorycardlane.com on top of anywhere you listen to your podcasts. But also on memorycardlane.com, you can find a calendar of upcoming events. You can find uh, a way to submit your own memories to us. You can find a link to our Discord. There's all sorts of fun little tidbits. Uh, Along with my show notes, I said I post a video. If you want to go see what the virtual boy is, I posted a, a link to a YouTube video on the show notes for today all sorts of fun stuff if you want to go check out our website at www.memorycarlane.com uh there's also plugs to our social media i'm on various platforms as david is wrong and rob hit him with your social media i will be found on twitch.tv forward slash f-a-t-b-o-i-r-i-p-z that boy rips well i think that'll about do it for today and before I take it out of here, oh, no, I'm not going to take it out of here because we got to do a roundtable. Mm-hmm. We got to do a roundtable. Well, ladies and gentlemen, every week we tell you a story about, you know, something relevant to the current week in gaming history. And in doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the game, what it took from the world as its inspiration or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. As part of this, we... Well, we teach you and we learn while doing so. That's the fun of teaching you is every week I get to learn new things. But in our, as part of our commitment to it, we like to go round table and talk about our biggest takeaways. So, Rob, what did you learn today? Well, Dave, 
I learned all about the Virtual Boy. I knew about its existence, but I didn't really know how it functioned. I actually, the most surprising thing to me about all of this is that I didn't realize it was intended to be played as a tabletop. I genuinely thought this was just like the Oculus and that you put it on your head and you played it like that. I didn't know it was intended to be like on a table, on a stand. Um, That, yeah, that's just that part blew my mind when I was learning about that. Uh, All this time, I thought it was just like Oculus, you put it on your head and you you play it. I thought maybe sitting down, but I guess I just never thought of it being like a metal stand on it. But yeah, no, I mean, that's, that was the the crazy thing about like the actual hardware, but I'm just shocked. At, like I said, this is just something it's to me, just the, the awesome thing about learning about this is just that something like this existed. It's such a early time. I mean, who would have thunk that 3D existed in the early 90s, you know, or the mid 90s? It's just just blows your mind. 3D existed earlier than that. We talked about that. We talked about that. Uh, Yeah, we talked about that. 3D existed earlier, but this is when it hit. I mean, the mid 90s. VR is what I did. I'd say 3D. I meant VR. Oh, VR. Yeah. Yeah. This VR is what I had meant. Not 3D. Obviously, maybe I mixed it up. I don't know. I thought I said VR. Maybe I didn't say VR and I said 3D because I was reading 3D. But no, I just like I said, I think that it's a very early time for VR. And it's just it's kind of interesting to think, like, where could we be today? Had this taken off? Right. I think you did say VR, but I was making the point that this is kind of when that was all happening in the 80s or when the technology was starting to be invented and they started making all the cool gloves and stuff like that, that eventually fell out of favor and then were found again i i didn't know anything about how we got to the virtual boy so like learning about what it was learning about what it was was pretty cool uh and you know that it was the private eye and that turned into virtual boy i realize now in hindsight that i i could have made a joke about the private eye visiting nintendo and it not being a detective, but that's a missed opportunity that I have to live with now. But up, up, but up, up. So, but yeah, it was. It's always cool. It's always cool to learn about all these technologies that come together to make things. You know, maybe one day we'll look at the Wii and learn where the heck the motion controls came from, for instance. But this was kind of cool to see. Can you imagine? The very first like way that they played with this is they just stuck two of these private eyes on a welding helmet and said, oh, that's cool. That's what it's going to be. You know, I mean, that's it's pretty incredible. The things that people are able to come up with, you know, I mean, there's it, it's a it's it's a great thing that there are so many more intelligent and creative people in the world because the- like let the me tell you, I, I would I not have thought of stuff like this. I remember in that episode we were talking about the history of VR. I I talked about the earliest VR setups that were like these whole room setups that looked like this weird like sci-fi machine with cables coming everywhere that people had to like pull from the ceiling and everything. It's pretty gnarly, and uh, and here we just get this little these little goggle type deal. It's kind of neat. So. Alrighty. Well, Rob, I think on that note, we can wrap it up before I take it out of here. Is there anything that you'd like to add to today's episode? Well, Dave, as always, I just want to take a quick moment to say thank you to all of our listeners. It means a lot to us to have your support, and we hope that in some way we support you as well. Very, very true. Thank you so much for joining us week after week. 
which brings us to next week. We hope you'll join us again next week. Rob, next week we're going to kind of take a break from all this heavy stuff. I, I Honestly, we're kind of going to look at a game that, I, I mean, I hope someone out there proves me wrong. But I think it's a game that has like little to no historical significance. <laughs> I mean, I I beg to differ, Dave. I definitely beg to differ on this one. It, I mean, it's just plain fun. It, it's a game we both enjoy, and so we decided to do an episode on it. But realistically, like otherwise, what, what, what? I, I mean, I guess save it for next week. But I, I don't know, man. I just don't know. Well, Dave. I think next week we'll have to tell everyone what's so significant about this game, but I'm sure everyone's wondering what, what is game it? are we talking about? All right. Well, released in July of 92 for the super Nintendo, the teenage mutant Ninja turtles, turtles in time is a beat em up video game that has the turtles chasing the statue of Liberty through time itself. As part of the episode, we're going to look at the game. We may look at a few other turtle games and we're actually going to talk about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles themselves. So if you ever wanted to learn about how they came to be, that's going to be part of our episode for funsies. So, you know, grab some pizza and join us again next week as we take a martial arts trip down memory card lane. Cowabunga, dude. Do the thing. Boo.